Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Village Global's Venture Stories. I'm here today with a very special guest, Justin Murphy. Justin, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks a lot for having me. Really appreciate it. Justin, uh, there are a lot of ways one, one can introduce you, but, but I'm curious, how do you sort of introduce yourself or how do you sort of describe to people the, the project or mission that you are, that you are trying, to, trying to achieve? Well, lately I've been telling people I'm the full stack professor. That's what I'm going for. Basically, I was a professor for about five or six years, almost six years. And yeah, there's a kind of story behind it, but the the short version of it is I just basically got fed up with all of the bureaucracy and the kind of increasingly oppressive atmosphere of academia. And at the same time, my internet projects were kind of growing. My, my blog was growing. I do some videos on YouTube and stuff like that. And it was clear that I was getting traction on the internet. And, you know, all I've ever really set out to do, uh, you know, as as an adult in my in my life, my vocation is to think the best ideas I could, get as close to the real truth as I could, and to communicate those ideas as widely and as effectively as possible. That's the only reason I ever went into academia. And basically, it just became increasingly clear that academia felt more and more like a sinking ship every passing month. And my internet projects uh, felt kind of more alive and more influential every passing month. And I figured, you know, I'm only 33. I still have enough piss and vinegar in me to try and, you know, make something new, try to try to hack it out on my own. So I basically decided to just up and leave academia and go all in on doing my intellectual work full time on the internet. Totally. And, and Jonathan Haidt has talked a little bit about, he says, sort of the, the purpose of the, of the university was originally around, you know, finding truth. Uh, I'm sort of simplifying radically, but, but you know, pursuit of mm-hmm. knowledge. And now it's sort of evolved into sort of activism over knowledge. And so I just, I say that to say, uh, to ask you, is your experience in the university that you were pursuing truth and that got in the way of some activism or, or how did you sort of have a falling out? Yeah, I think there's this outside view of academia that it's filled with all of these kind of foaming at the mouth, radical left-wing activists. But in my experience, I mean, there's some truth to that, but in my experience, the the real problem is much more mundane than that. It's just the good old fashioned problem of extreme bureaucratic sclerosis combined with a kind of oppressive set of uh, political assumptions and political attitudes that are now increasingly well-known in the public. But it's not like I felt particularly oppressed by political ideologies. It was just, it's an increasingly suffocating, oppressive environment where no one really says anything particularly interesting and everyone is walking on eggshells. And the job itself, frankly, just kind of sucks. You have to do so much paperwork and all of this kind of, uh, you know, increasingly onerous side work that actually just has nothing to do with seeking the truth or communicating it in any way that's in any way interesting or satisfying. Totally. And so when Jonathan Haidt has that critique of, of the university, do you, is he accurate or is he, is he not accurate? Like what, what are the, but besides what you just mentioned, so what, what are the challenges of the, of the university today? Yeah, I think Haidt is a very good, uh, you know, diagnostician of this problem. There is certainly a kind of presumed uh, political ideology that that motivates a lot of the the ideas and the, and the behaviors of academics. There's definitely a kind of social justice presumption underneath a lot of it, and especially in particular disciplines like in the humanities or in education or what have you. 
so that's all real, but it paints a somewhat misleading portrait if you imagine it as this kind of hotbed of of radicals and activists. No, it's mostly just uh, kind of uh, career bureaucrats, basically. So the political ideology is really just a kind of moralistic gloss on just basically uh, kind of boring, submissive people who really just want a paycheck and some status from this kind of traditional prestige institution. No. So that that's how I would see it. So, so when people say, or some people say, you know, fear that critical theory is just sort of like eating, you know, like getting into social sciences, but also like eating even the hard sciences and even like math isn't necessarily safe. Is that overblown? It's not that it's overblown. It's that I would not identify that as the, the causal motor of the problem. That's a kind of relatively cheap, superficial gloss that is applied on top of what is a much more mundane and widespread problem of just generalized bureaucratic sclerosis and complacency. And, you know, so it's like the the underlying problem is the same problem you would see if you walk into a, a you know, a typical uh, under-functioning government bureaucracy. It's, it's very similar, but the difference is these are intellectuals. So they're able to apply a kind of uh, a sophisticated sounding political or ideological gloss to it. I'm just emphasizing here that that's really not the the main problem. That's something that's added on afterwards in a rather superficial way, I think. And can you give some historical overview of how this problem came to be? Well, it's a good question. I mean, I do have a narrative about this. I, I'm happy to give you the, the short version. It, it, it does seem to be that in the 60s and 70s, when our kind of modern institutions of academia really take take the, the form or the shape that we recognize today, you know, namely left-leaning kind of intellectuals looking for a relatively cushy job, for instance, and being able to get it. That really, the way that we think about it, uh, really happens around the 60s and 70s. That's when, you know, the women's studies departments emerge. And a lot of the, you know, what we now identify as the the contemporary academic landscape is is established. And my sense is, from talking with lots of other professors who are much older than me, my sense is that it used to be quite good. You know, if you were an intellectual and you just wanted to read books and you just wanted to write and you wanted to be relatively insulated from, you know, the 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 problems of market competition, academia was for some time a pretty nice spot, a, a pretty pla- a pretty good place to be. You know, if you can get a PhD, if you're smart and you could break in, and and frankly, it wasn't that hard to break in, so it was it wasn't nearly as competitive. Uh, you know, if you had what it took to get a PhD and you could do basic original research you know, a lot of people got PhDs in the 60s and 70s. The problem was, of course, that they were anticipating growth dynamics that were probably unsustainable. So for people listening to this who might not quite understand how how this works, you know, the, the, the grad school system is pretty much all about producing more professors. So the, the raison d'etre of the professor is, in large part, other than teaching and doing the bureaucracy, is to train uh, new grad students. And those new grad students are implicitly uh, preparing to become professors. So you had this very cushy, very attractive, kind of economically insulated career track uh, that intellectuals could get into in the 60s and 70s. But everything from there was expecting or, you know, kind of embedded in that institution as it emerged was the expectation of increasing growth in the number of professorships. So really the big problem that you have now is just a sheer overproduction of grad students who once upon a time would get a job as a professor, but now they're just extremely overeducated and quite intelligent people who have given, 
you know, sometimes as much, as many as 10 years of their life to becoming an academic. And now they're facing uh, just extremely unsatisfying job prospects. And so what, what, what has happened is that now there's this abundance of highly educated academic labor, uh, which now occupies a kind of permanent army of, 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 of cheap adjunct professors. That's the term for basically short-term contract professors. You know, they, they may or may not get a new contract each semester, basically. And um, they're often quite underpaid. So basically, that, that's, that's the essential kind of economic background is that there's this overproduction of people who can teach and do the bureaucratic work of running a university. Uh, but these people were anticipating a high status, high income, satisfying, cushy, job. And that's kind of what they went into it for. And so in this environment, think about what types of political and social implications that's going to have. Well, these people see themselves as really important and special and high status, and they're still very addicted to a certain glamorous image of being a professor. It's very, it still feels and sounds to them very prestigious. But in fact, the underlying kind of economic reality is that they're extremely vulnerable and precarious because the fact is their PhD in English is not really useful for anything other than being a professor. So there's this bizarre kind of combination of high expectations in terms of status and income and and the prestige with which one sees oneself and the actual underlying distribution of economic power. And I think, frankly, that's that's how you should understand a lot of the kind of crazy culture war stuff that you're seeing associated with the university is these people don't have really anywhere else to go. They're terrified of doing anything entrepreneurial and staking, it, staking out on their own. And yet they're basically just stuck in a system that has a, a really, really high supply of labor. Uh, how does that lead to the, the uh, bureaucratic uh, sclerosis you were, you were talking about or sort of the administrative bloat? Oh, well, my point is, that these people are these professors a lot of professors are willing to do anything pretty much just yeah. to get their just to keep their job just to keep their status they're addicted right. to this kind of image of themselves and because of that they'll take on any amount of uh kind of stultifying bureaucratic workload yeah. even if it means that the actual reality of the job is they're almost never doing any intellectual work that they originally got into the game for yeah. do you have a sense for whether the administrative bloat of the universities is like way bigger than it used to be maybe 30 years ago. And if yes, why, why that happened? Because that is a different group of people than these grad students, right? Yeah. So that is definitely the case. It's been well-documented. I don't have numbers on me, but it's been mostly in the upper echelons of uh, university administration, I believe. So there's been this proliferation of uh, administrator posts and yeah. And I think that's a, that's a, a classic story of just kind of bureaucratic, uh, self-perpetuation once, you know, a, a, once an administrator gets a department, right, then they're uh, intrinsically motivated to grow that department. And yeah, and I think that's, that's basically what's happened over the past yeah. few decades. Yeah. How, so before getting into how to solve it outside the system, how do you solve it inside the system? Like if you were magically, you know, put in charge of, of a university or, or like what, what's, what, what should happen and what, what's going to happen? Like, yeah, I mean, I'm probably the wrong person to ask that question because I don't think you're solving this from the inside. I just don't think you are at all, which is why I decided to leave. So that's my that's just my honest take on that. I mean, there, I know there are people out there trying to do that, and I wish them the very best, and I hope I hope they can they can do it. But I would not put my money on that personally. I see I see that as impossible. 
And so, yeah, I don't have too much to suggest on that front. <laughs> so let, let's talk about the future of, 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 of education outside of the, of the university. Maybe you could start with how, how do you see it pl- playing out? Well, I think it's going to be chipped away at in many different ways, of course. And I can probably speak best to the way that I'm trying to do it personally. I mean, my, my little riff here is that I think probably too many people think about what will replace the university or how to replace the university. And I, I think that's not the best way to think about it. Personally, what I'm interested in is how to disintermediate the functions of the professor. So the wedge I'm trying to create, the, the, the part of it that I'm trying to disrupt is the actual calculations of aspiring professional intellectuals. So talented, intellectually inclined young people, let's say from 18 years old to, you know, uh, even in their last year of their PhD, you know, maybe up until their 30s. This demographic of people who feel called to do research, to seek the truth as, as a vocation for their life. I think these people more and more need to be shown that they have a higher long-term expected value by trying to create their own intellectual platforms for themselves on the internet uh, compared to putting in the work and paying your dues to try to break into academia. I'm now uh, convinced of this as an empirical proposition that for the average intellectually gifted young person who wants to pursue a long-term intellectual life, I I firmly believe already we have crossed the threshold where you have a higher expected value to go all in on trying to build your own personal independent platform on the internet. And so that's, that's the part of it I'm trying to tackle. And I'm trying to basically show that and demonstrate that I'm trying to provide a demonstration effect because this is essentially what I'm doing with my, with my own projects. Uh, and what it basically boils down to is just, for me, it's thinking about the value that professors provide to universities and then thinking just how can I repackage that value in a way that works on the internet and that resonates with what people want and need in a direct way on the internet. So I'm doing a bunch of things to that effect. And so, and, and it's basically, it's, it's research, uh, intellectual work, and then teaching, right? And so you're, you're is, that, is that accurate? Yeah, except teaching should be disaggregated a bit because it's not really just about teaching. And one of the things you learn if you try to do teaching on the internet with an open mind, one of the things you learn is that what is traditionally called teaching in this kind of academic tr- tradition or in this university-centric tradition is actually a... a pretty bad proxy for a whole bunch of things like mentorship or like community facilitation. And this is something that when you try to do this stuff on the open market, you really start to see this in a new way. So I would say the the functions that I was providing to the university uh, was actually this big bag of functions, which now I am disaggregating or, or unbundling, if you'd like, uh, in, a, in a bunch of different ways. Research is one, teaching is another. But teaching is really a kind of, uh, it's almost like I'm providing a social network to other intellectuals in the niches that I am doing research in. Totally. So you, you have the podcast, you have the blog, you're starting courses. Describe the Justin Murphy empire as, as you see it evolving over time. Yeah. So it pretty much has two major components. The first is my own personal intellectual work. And that's just, yeah, where I do my thinking and my speaking and my research and my production of that. I, I, I'm inclined to say writing because that is traditionally the dominant medium, but in the internet game, I, I really am seeing it much more broadly. So I think about it in terms of I do thinking and research work, and then I 
formulate that into multiple media at the same time, whether that be text and voice and video. Uh, I mean, I'm increasingly building uh, production output systems that don't even have to distinguish between those two because as we have better and better things like transcription uh, services working better and better each year, you know, it's actually an extraordinary privilege for intellectuals today to think less and less about, is this going to be a written idea? Is this going to be a video or is this going to be audio? Uh, so I just think about it in terms of the one half of it is me doing all of the same stuff I was doing as a professor in terms of thinking, reading, and then producing ideas and putting them out into the world or producing work and putting it out into the world. That's one half of what I'm doing. Uh, the other half is the kind of more business-related decisions, the, the business model aspect, which I'm just doing in a highly experimental uh, incremental way because I'm not a businessman. I, I never have been, and I don't really know anything about that. So basically what I'm doing at the moment is just basically testing through like very quick, rapid, agile experiments, what works best to basically chip off my intellectual work into different ways. And so what that looks like at the moment is, yeah, books, obviously, what I think will be around for a long time. So I'm writing books and selling them. I am doing courses, online courses. The online course industry is actually uh, you know, booming quite well. So that I think is going to be around for a while. And that's a natural complement to what professors do, for sure. But the other one that I think is a little bit harder to process, especially for academics who might want to make this shift, is what I alluded to before as the, as the community facilitation aspect or the mentorship aspect, you know, in the business world, this gets coded in many different ways. Like sometimes in some sectors, it's called coaching. In some sectors, it's called, you know, mentoring. Uh, in the business world, they sometimes refer to individual strategy groups as quote unquote masterminds. So there's all this interesting kind of business speak, but the core functions of those things have academic equivalents. So I am also doing things like mentoring uh, people who are trying to do their own intellectual work on their blog or whatever. I'm essentially doing what I was doing for undergrads or grad students, but in this internet-based way where I have to basically kind of create new categories because coaching just sounds corny or uh, mastermind groups that doesn't resonate with academics, right? So I'm, I'm basically trying to create these new categories, but it's essentially just replicating the tried and true business models that you see in other sectors. Totally. And so one question I have is how do you sort of make it, well, two things. One, just super easy for professors to make the switch to become full stack professors. And part of it is like, you know, creating the tooling and infrastructure that they could do that. But the other part is just like the status, you know, as you mentioned, they're, they're you know, hyper status conscious. That's why they're there. So how, how do you make it okay? You know, we're seeing it in journalism, of course, you know, and even today, Barry Weiss and, uh, you know, Andrew Sullivan just just quit their respect, the New York Times and New York Magazine, respectively, to go to Substack. How, how do we see that same innovation in academia? Well, my big wager is that that's going to happen through a demonstration effect. Because at the end of the day, as you're saying, people are ultimately swayed by status and power, and most people will eventually go where the power is. So my essential wager is that I'm just going to try to find a way to win. And when I win sufficiently well enough, then uh, people are going to be like, oh, you mean I can do all this stuff I want to do as an intellectual without playing by any of the rules and without going through these terrible institutions? Uh, so basically, I mean, once I start making really good money, frankly, and I think people are going to be like, oh, this is real. This is a real option. I'm going to do what Justin's doing. I'm not going to go into academia. Yeah. Yeah. We're now going to have the conversation that we would have if, if, if the mic, mics were off, which I know is the conversations you, you, you'd like to have. <laughs> uh, so, you know, this is Village Global podcast. Village Global is, 
is a venture firm that I, that I run. I'm also uh, chairman of, of this company called OnDeck, which is an education company. It works very closely with Village Global. Village Global is a big investor in it. And OnDeck basically is, well, the first product it offers is sort of an MBA for founders, basically, before, before they've started their companies. It helps them find co-founders, hires, you know, customers. Think of it like a YC, YC or Village Global Network Catalyst experience, but before you have a company, and or often. And, and we're about to launch one for angel investors too. But the idea we, we, we've, we've sort of thought about is like, we, we could just offer it as a service, this sort of like course, because we, we do community, we do curriculum, and we're, 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 we're going to start that in the entrepreneurial space for people who teach, you know, on growth and sales and other, other, other topics. They just come in, give, give the lecture, and, and we handle everything else. But we've also, th- you know, so part of part, basically two, two goals in addition to make Village Global a very successful fund. Uh, one is, yeah, create, create a university that helps spur like, economic growth and innovation and technology and, and do that from, from a business perspective. But the other is sort of participate to, uh, you know, in creating something that is truly about pursuit of knowledge or enabling people who, who are pursuing knowledge, but are, don't have the resources to do it, to, to do it in a, in a bigger way. So I'm, I'm very interested in the type of work that you're doing and interested in helping others do it too. And with, with, with Substack, it's sort of easy uh, to, to fig- figure out what the tool is because you just, mm. you know, uh, like something where they can have an email list and subscribe, whereas professors, you're disaggregating it in a, in a few different ways. So they would need, you know, something to have a subscription, but something to also teach. That, I'm just curious what you think that product ends up looking like, where it's sort of one tap, and now you have, you know, professor as a cert, or full stack professor. Like, what is the experience? Yeah, it's a great question, and I think different people will try different models, and. Th- but that's not a very interesting question. That's not a very interesting answer, right? So in my, in my view, what you're probably going to see, the most successful full-stack professors are really going to double down on this no-code movement, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Are you? Uh, yeah, sorry. I was on mute. Yes, of course. Yeah, right. So in other words, I think what you're going to see, and this is essentially what I'm doing, is there's not going to be a one-size-fits-all solution where some startup provides some kind of out of the box tool that just gives the full stack professor every tool they need in a fully integrated, you know, SaaS product. I don't think that's going to happen because I think you're going to uh, see a lot of differentiation and the full stack professor uh, is going to have a few different inflections. And I think they're going to essentially have to be their own startup founder. And I think the no code phenomenon is, is a real game changer in this regard, because for me, for instance, I'm not a programmer. I I have some very, very basic programming skills, but I would not be able to build a startup if if no code was not a thing. And I essentially have a little startup that is just my personal little experimental shell that I'm, I'm, I'm building to package and frame these different functions that I was alluding to before. And I'm basically thinking about it as a startup. I'm treating it as a startup. It's a separately branded project. And I would simply not have been able to do that if I had to hire a developer or be a developer myself. But basically, I use a, a no-code stack where I, I glue together things like member stack and Webflow and uh, a circle community forum. And it all works really quite well. And I use Zapier to basically tie all of those things together. And so people who join you know, my little startup community basically have the experience of, of a 
fairly traditional and quite well-functioning, I think, SaaS app. And yet I was able to do that in the course of a few months, really, to get it up and running and, and, and make some decent starting revenue. So, so that's, my, that's my vision, I think, for the full-stack professor. The full-stack professor will have to basically build their own startup. And most likely, that's going to be through no-code tools. Yeah. And, but most professors aren't going to be as savvy as, as you. So the, the question is, can we, can we make it super easy for them to, to do that? Uh, well, I'm not sure I agree. I mean, I think if you can do a PhD, you can <laughs> glue together some no-code tools and make a, make a little SaaS app with no-code tools, right? I mean, I think what you're not going to see is established professors make this change. I mean, if you're over you know, 35 or 40 and you've been in academia for uh, several years, you're so invested, right? Your sunk costs, whether you see that as a fallacy or not, your sunk costs uh, feel extremely real. And also for what it's worth, you just lose your edge. You lose your energy. You, you really do become complacent and uh, you become fearful of, of the real world. I mean, I, see, I've, I've, I saw this a lot and I felt it in myself also as one of the reasons I decided to jump ship right before I felt like I was losing my last ounce of uh, you know, the piss and vinegar that would allow me to do this sort of thing. So yeah, I say right off the older professors, they're not going to be building no-code startups to defect from academia. No, of course not. But your average PhD student, I think when they see the results I'm having, uh, they're going to learn no-code tools pretty quickly and quite happily, I think. Yeah, totally. When you mentioned that some professors are going to do it differently, how, how, what, what's another way you could imagine a professor doing it? Well, as we're seeing right now in the creator economy or what they call the passion economy, there are many different models, right? There are many different ways to make it. You can do a paid newsletter full time and and that's your main hustle. I think for a certain type of intellectual, for a certain type of researcher, perhaps uh, most naturally we might think of, let's say, finance professors, right? Let's take your average, you know, early career finance professor who maybe finds academia just to be terribly stultifying and perhaps, you know, they're not making as much money as they might like. And it's just an unhappy situation for them. It's increasingly viable to do a really high quality kind of daily newsletter play, right? Uh, There are lots of people now who are making very, very good money doing an everyday finance newsletter. That's just one example, right? So that would be a kind of uh, version of the full stack professor model that I'm describing or what I also call the indie thinker model. And that's for a certain type of person, that's going to be more than enough. That's, that's going to be perfectly good. You could just do that, right? Uh, but I think, then I think for other people with different strengths and, and different weaknesses, you're going to want to piece together a, a different ecosystem of tools and platforms. You know, the online course game is, uh, seems to be thriving. And that's an obvious uh, context in which professors will have a comparative advantage especially when professors realize how, how relatively low the quality bar is for online courses. I mean, uh, this is like a big open secret. I, I'm, I'm, I'm so stunned that professors don't really realize how easily they could dominate the online course game if they, if they decided to move into it. And uh, so some people could just do courses, right? For me, yeah, so that, that's basically what I think you're going to see is differentiation by uh, research domains, but also kind of personality traits. People will, people will build their own kind of uh, boutique uh, full stack professor offerings based on what they're good at and, and what they're not good at. Who, who are groups, who can't do this? Like if you're in the hard sciences or I mean, you require labs or something like, is, is that much harder? Like who is this for? Who's it not for? Yeah, that's a great question. There's certainly limitations. I think the hard sciences are a, a good example of where this would be difficult, where you need basically a large sum of money to do your basic work. If you need a big laboratory, 
that's possibly going to be a problem. But even there, there's interesting innovation uh, taking place. I don't know if you've ever heard of Michael Tumim. Uh, you might, you might want to look him up. Uh, he's, he's doing interesting innovation in this front. He's a computer scientist and he's basically trying to hack together uh, financially viable ways for what I'm calling, you know, full stack professors or indie thinkers to do relatively hard scientific work that traditionally requires a lot of funding. There are ways to hack it. You know, the point that he makes is that the R and D budgets for big tech corporations are massive. Like I think he told me that the, the uh, budget, you know, Microsoft's budget for R and D is way bigger than the entire uh, national science foundation for the United States government. Right. So uh, there are, if you can be creative, I think there are even possibilities for the hard sciences to uh, carve out interesting independent niches for themselves the people that are not going to be able to do this also outside of the hard sciences, frankly, and you know, not to sound rude or anything, but, but frankly, there are a lot of people who literally went into academia because they did not want to work hard and because they wanted to pretty much have an insulated, cushy job where they just have high status kind of guaranteed to them. Uh, I, I, I'm seriously, I'm not like subtweeting anyone here or being rude, but, but just frankly, there are a lot of people like that in academia. So those people are screwed because they're on a sinking ship and they don't have... I, I don't see how they're how they're going to get off of it. Yeah, five years from now, are you are you envisioning there's like a thousand full stack professors? Or what what happens if the professors just start sort of going, you know, D to C? Does it mean like universities are fucked, or what what, what happens? Yeah, well, I think in some ways it's already happening, but it's hard to see because of how things are framed or perceived, right? So, I would say, for instance, the the 27-year-old right now who is making a good living by producing philosophy videos on YouTube, for instance, is essentially a kind of fork of academia. That is someone who traditionally probably would have pursued a PhD in philosophy, but realized a few years ago that which way the winds are blowing and, and, and made a good choice and is now doing much better than he would have done or she would have done had she gone the academic route. So in some ways, I think this is already happening. It just doesn't get registered as the phenomenon that I'm talking about. I think in the, in the short term, I think if my success that I'm having one year out of, I quit, I quit academia one year ago, if my success continues to grow simply at the growth rates I'm currently having, I think within a year, maybe two years, you're going to see a lot of people who are currently either early career academics or currently in PhD programs looking at my results and literally quitting what they're doing to do what I'm doing. Because I don't, and I'm not tooting my own horn or anything yeah. like that. I'm just saying there have not been that many people who have visibly and publicly chosen to straight up quit academia to do the internet full time and who have had success in a visible way. And so I'm already having, you know, I'm a, a little bit of success. I'm, I'm, I'm certainly not like super rich or powerful or anything by any means, but I said, but I'm doing what I said I was going to do. And it's basically working as I predicted, as I called it would. And, and so I think what will happen then is assuming, you know, and of course things could go terribly wrong. I'm not like arrogant or anything. Um, perhaps I'll fail for sure. It's totally possible. But if I succeed in what I'm trying to do and it looks like I am, then in the short term, you're going to have people defecting. And then what I think is going to happen is the people who choose to go into academia are going to be more and more, there's going to be more and more selection bias for essentially the laziest, most complacent, and kind of like politically motivated academics. So what's going to happen actually is that as I'm more and more successful, or people like me, I should say, are more and more successful, the political problems that you're seeing within uh, academia are actually going to get worse and worse because those are going to be the only types of people who even want to go into academia anymore. You know, then it'll just be a question of, uh, you know, kind of long, like how long does our society want to subsidize that, right? That'll probably reach some kind of 
breaking point. Uh, but that's an essentially a kind of political question that I think is is underdetermined, and, and I don't know what the final end game for that is. Yep, totally. Yeah, just be my my sense is all these you know the the top schools will always be fine. You know, we we just heard announcement you know a week ago or so that Harvard is going full, full Zoom, and 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 there were you know side by side comparisons of like you know, streaming for Netflix, streaming for, you know, for other streaming services and then streaming for, for, for Harvard. And it's just, it just shows how, you know, sort of how ridiculously, you know, overpriced the, the, the offering is. But I wonder if it's just such a sacred, you know, institution um, that the best people will just keep continuing to, to, to go. Uh, and maybe, you know, the, the, the best universities will be fine, but it, it, and it's the sort of, you know, ones that are mid tier that will, that will suffer. But it's interesting to think like, Five years from now, mm-hmm. ten years from now, how much higher education will actually be be impacted? Yeah, it's it's a good question, and and it's difficult to speculate. I I do suspect that the uh, the Ivy League brands are very powerful and will remain very powerful. And if you can get a PhD at Harvard and play that game well, then there are still many good reasons to do that for sure. So I definitely wouldn't expect that to uh, disappear or go bankrupt or anything like that anytime soon. However perceptions of that will change. And I think the the general social value that is assigned to that, in other words, the the actual effectiveness of that prestige marker, I think is already decreasing, frankly, for what it's worth. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, I think getting a PhD from Harvard will still be attractive to many people and there will be smart, interesting, uh, successful people who continue to choose to do that, for sure. But the unique causal power of that, right? The, the actual uh, improvement in your uh, power over the world that that gives you, I think is going to, is going to be decreasing, frankly. That's my, that's my hunch. Yeah, totally. No, I, I think that, that, that makes sense. I want to transition a little bit to your intellectual work. Why don't you, if you were to describe sort of the, the thread that you've kept pulling over the last few years in your, in your specific intellectual work, how would you describe sort of you know, the, the question that you keep asking in different ways or the, or the thread that you, you keep pulling in terms of what, what drives you down certain rabbit holes? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, it's difficult to answer because the, frankly, to do a PhD in a competitive way where you're trying to get an academic job, you, you really have to do what it's expedient for you to do. You have to choose a subfield of research that you're capable of doing extremely complicated methods in, in a way that uh, fits a kind of substantive niche that is hot at the moment that uh, hiring committees are going to like you for. So pretty much my intellectual coming of age through my grad school experience was highly conditioned by just strategic imperatives. And most of academia is that. And so what's interesting is that my research as a professor and and including my, my PhD and, and all of my kind of post-PhD academic peer-reviewed publications I don't really identify with them too much. I mean, I did good work and I'm, I'm proud of it. And some of it was interesting for sure, but it was all, it was all basically expediency. And frankly, what's interesting is you don't really learn this about yourself in, in that kind of brutally honest way until you take the plunge and leave academia. And you, all of a sudden you're able to do whatever you want on the open market. It's hugely illuminating about what you're really interested in. Uh, I think had I stayed in academia, if I was still a professor, I would, of course, be talking to you as if my academic research was was my absolute passion and my genuine interest. And, and I could ape that as well as anyone, you know, I could mimic that. Uh, and I did. So that's a bit of a caveat to answer your question that what I'm going to say actually doesn't really map onto if you looked at like my Google Scholar. But what I would say is that for me, 
the the long run interest or kind of research agenda that I've always been personally really interested in is frankly it, it's it's been the question of how institutions pacify people creatively and intellectually and politically. Uh, that that's something that uh, has has always been an abiding interest of mine and. I tried to do that in a kind of instrumental, you know, political science research way. I was trained as a quantitative political scientist. And uh, that was that was something I tried to tackle here and there in some of my research. But what's interesting now is that uh, now that I'm totally free, I'm able to pretty much do it in my own way. And what that looks like now is having to find ways that resonate on the internet. And that that's kind of an interesting challenge in its own right. Uh, but it kind of, this is how it comes full circle because I'm, I've always been interested in how exactly is it that institutions essentially lure individuals into uh, kind of investing in those institutions, but then kind of sucking the life out of them. Uh, that's something I've always been interested in trying to model that and, and then figure out by implication kind of pathways for escaping that, for, for kind of maximizing one's, one's vitality and, and creative or intellectual or political freedom. Yeah, so that went from a kind of academic interest of mine to now a kind of ex- experimental, like personal life project in a way. Yeah. Totally. There, there are two authors uh, that you are, are really excited or think is that you're really excited about. One that you wrote a whole whole book on. I, I, I pronounce his name incorrectly. Based Deleuze. Is that, how do you pronounce his name? Yeah. Um, yeah, that's good enough. Uh, you would say Deleuze, but yeah, that's fine. <laughs> okay. So uh, talk about what you find so interesting uh, about him and and why it's important that, that people understand him and and maybe, yeah, give some color there. Yeah, sure. Well, again, it, the the interesting background, I think, for people who listen to your podcast here is probably to talk a little bit about the 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 kind of business model considerations. Because once I d- decided to leave academia, I had to think, okay, of all the things that I'm personally really interested in working on, and now I can do it however I want in the open, you know, no rules, no holds barred. I did nonetheless have to, you know, think a little bit about what type of projects and what types of framings are going to play well on the internet. And so I chose to focus on some of the most obscure, abstract uh, French philosophers, because basically my market thesis here is that the people that are experts on the super abstract French philosophers, such as Gilles Deleuze, are so far off the deep end of politicized academic gobbledygook, just genuinely sheer nonsense in, in the most kind of extreme and transparent way that I figured, okay, well, the supply of actually interesting, valuable insight about what these crazy thinkers were actually saying, the supply of that is incredibly low because all of the smart people doing work on that, uh, it's completely monopolized by the kind of most excessively uh, idiotic and, and, and kind of politicized ac- academic language and linguistic kind of signaling games. So I made this hypothesis that, you know, I've always actually been quite interested in a lot of those abstract flowery French philosophers. And I read a lot of their books. And I actually do think that there's a kind of core message often that a lot of people simply don't know because it is written in a really obscure way. And so I figured this was a, this was a great, this was a great place to start because the supply of good stuff on these people is so low and I'm capable and competent of doing it. And virtually no one is doing this in a public way that is actually trying to communicate with real people. And so that was why I decided to do uh, Deleuze because I, that, that's pretty much the background there. Yeah, totally. Uh, and the other thinker that you uh, write about, is it Patel? Uh, you're doing a course on how, how do I pronounce his name? Yeah, that's right. Uh, George Bataille. 
the tie. And did you say he, you want him to be, or you hope that he's for the left, what Gerard is for the right? Or was that? Yeah, that's right. That was, that was something I tweeted not too long ago. Yeah. You want me to unpack that? Yeah, yeah please. Yeah. Well, first of all, th- they were somewhat related in that Gerard does cite Bataille. Bataille, Bataille is of an earlier generation, uh, but Gerard does cite Bataille and they have some shared uh, roots, if you will, uh, aside from being French, uh, in particular, the, the French anthropological tradition associated with people such as Durkheim and Marcel Mousse. And so they both rely quite heavily on anthropology as case material or, or data or evidence for developing their, their various social theories. And, you know, Bataille was quite an extraordinary case. So, so in many ways, he's very idiosyncratic, but they were both very interested in religion and they were both very interested in questions of the sacred and how, how sacredness is produced, right? So Girard is uh, very well known for the concept of the scapegoat, which a lot of people know right now and a lot of people are talking about right now for, for good reason. I think it is very relevant. But whereas Girard is seen as quite useful and attractive for people on the center right, let's say, Bataille was a revolutionary left winger. He always had a fraught par- relationship to the Communist Party. He was never really a uh, kind of willing you know, person who was willing to basically just, you know, say whatever the party wanted them to say. But he was definitely uh, sociologically and ideologically a fellow traveler of the Communist Party, even if he always kind of retained his own personal intellectual sovereignty. Uh, so sociologically and intellectually and politically, he was a man of the left, no doubt about it. And even if he never quite fit into it. And so, yeah, uh, he was very interested in, for instance, how one produces uh, the sacred through uh, ritualistic sacrifice, for instance. And so I have a theory that I think one of the major problems with the contemporary left is that you really can't have a robust and meaningful kind of egalitarian political tendency without some form of religious commitment. I, I personally, that's a, that's, a, that's a belief that I have, uh, which would take some more time to unpack. But if you think that is true, well, one of the interesting things that that explains is why the contemporary left is so theological in many ways. A lot of people have noted this, that uh, in, in many ways, the left seems possessed of a kind of religious zealotry. And uh, in many ways, you know, that, that, you can point to that. You, you can you can demonstrate that in, in a few different ways. You see it in the in the discourse, but you also see it in kind of the structure of the the activism, the way that the activism and the actual results of the activism are uh, just like radically disaligned. And it's really ultimately a kind of re- religious fervor that that makes sense out of it. In, at the end of the day, and so if you think that the contemporary, let's call it the woke left, as as people are wont to call it nowadays. If you think that's a losing path or it's not going to work or it's bad for any reason, and you, but you are nonetheless, you have kind of left-wing personality traits and you're still, uh, you know, at the end of the day, you lean left in your political preferences, then you're going to need someone like Bataille to basically provide a theory of what the contemporary secular atheist left has tried to uh, kind of act like they're too good for, but which they find themselves replicating unconsciously. So I argue just like Girard uh, provides a kind of Christian anthropological uh, vocabulary for navigating a kind of coherent and attractive center-right position today, I think Bataille provides a similarly uh, sophisticated 
left-leaning vocabulary uh, for people who are trying to find a kind of genuine, meaningful, egal- rad- like radical, but also egalitarian left-leaning politics. Yeah. And so let me show you my understanding of, of Gerard. You tell me where it's simplistic or, or should be edited. So my understanding is he says something like, you know, desire is based on what other people want. I mean, we want what other people want. And the fact that we want what other people want creates like or, or, uh, drives us to sort of converge uh, towards, towards similar desires. And that leads to conflict because we, you know, we were fighting over the, the same things effectively. Mm-hmm. And in order to, to solve that conflict, we need to have this sort of ritualistic uh, sacrifice or, or scapegoat someone such that we can sort of unleash this energy and, and things can start over again. And I think what Christianity is saying, instead of like scapegoating or religion is saying scapegoating externally, like scapegoat internally, like scapegoat yourself uh, or, or something like, you know, and look, look internally. Mm. Where, where is that simplistic or, or wrong? Oh, I think that's a, perfectly fine rehearsal of the basic ideas i mean that is the, that is the well-known kind of contemporary version of girard that circulates and when i think you know I'm, I'm not an elitist i think that does that does a good enough job of of getting at the of getting at some of the the core ideas in a way that people you know understand yeah and then i don't know if, I, I think you maybe didn't mention the scapegoat being i think one of the key concepts that that people associate with girard so the the idea is essentially that because desire is mimetic it has this kind of intrinsically zero sum kind of bedrock to it. And because that's ultimately irresolvable, it essentially requires a uh, kind of scapegoat mechanism as a, almost like a, I I tend to think of it as a kind of like a pressure valve. Uh, It it allows this kind of uh, irresolvable uh, pressure cooker of mimetic desire to blow off some steam essentially with some kind of sacrificial victim, uh, the scapegoat. And, you know, what's interesting about Bataille is that he really is pointing to a very similar uh, problematic, if, if you'd like to use uh, a French term, actually, that, uh, that Gerard is pointing to. But, but he, he provides a very different suggestion about what the main problem is. And for Bataille, I think it's, it's really quite fascinating. What Bataille says is that all systems will eventually run into moments where growth is no longer possible for whatever reason. And... Uh, maybe not forever, but there will be moments at least where growth is not happening. And when growth is foreclosed for any reason, then energy has to be wasted within the system. And so it's very interesting because it's, it's a similar kind of, uh, you know, pressure cooker kind of mental model. And uh, there will be these kind of untenable moments where steam has to be blown off. But uh, what Bataille says is that, or what Bataille seems to think, what he seems to suggest is that it is possible for us to develop social mechanisms that blow off that steam in relatively beneficial and pro-social ways. And so I, you know, I'm speaking somewhat out of school here and, you know, scholars of Gerard and Bataille would probably, you know, reprimand me here for being, uh, speaking a little too, too fast and loose. But basically what I think you can argue is that the scapegoat phenomenon that uh, Gerard points to, and which a lot of people see in contemporary political problems, especially the kind of witch hunts and, and mobbing behavior that you see today what Bataille is suggesting is that if we want to avert that kind of scapegoat mobbing tendency, there is a solution and it is purposeful wastage. It's what he calls expenditure without reserve. He says that every system, whether it be a physical system, but also social systems will need moments where if growth is no longer happening or it's no longer possible, then 
the, the energy that cannot be invested in growth has to be burned with literally no use whatever. And that's his theory for what ritualistic sacrifice is. So if you look throughout the ages, you know, societies in all times and places have curiously given a lot of time and space to what seems to be completely useless wastage of resources. The most famous example here being the, the tradition of potlatch where, you know, uh, traditional, you know, primitive tribes would literally just burn goods or burn slaves, for instance. And there's a whole kind of anthropological story about that. I don't, I, I don't want to kind of bore you with a lecture or anything, but basically the implication for us that I think is extraordinary and is the kind of left-wing uh, alternative to Girard that I, that I was tweeting about is essentially that we need to create, and we can, in fact, create institutions where there is a kind of sacred uh, expenditure, a kind of non-utilitarian, completely useless expenditure, and that this produces a series of kind of sociological mechanisms that are uh, cohesive, that are communitarian, and that essentially prov- essentially generates uh, kind of religious belonging and, and, and religious uh, kind of community and, and, and peace, peace dynamics. So that's the thesis anyway. Yeah. And um, what sort of the, the say more about the sort of Christian response or or the the Christ response or the religious response to to it? Well, Bataille was not a Christian, and he he was a, he was a wild man. I mean, he was basically trying to build a kind of secular religion. He he was an atheist, and uh, but what he thought was that you could basically replicate the mechanisms undergirding religion, and that you could use them in a kind of atheistic way to produce desirable social phenomena and. So, you know, that I think that's that's an interesting debate. Uh, I'm 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 not convinced that that's actually possible, but there's there's an obvious kind of consistency with those people today who see in traditional values or traditional religion or Christianity or whatever. There isn't a, a visible kind of harkening back to traditional value systems right now, I think, in uh, people trying to kind of process what is widely seen as the, the, the failure of liberalism and the, the impossibility of a sustainable liberalism as people become increasingly interested in traditional value systems. You know, I think Bataille essentially, if you're interested in Christianity and you're also interested in a genuine left, radical left politics that is not, you know, resentful and is not violent but, and is genuinely about freedom and egalitarian redistribution uh, to, the, to the maximum possible than uh, a kind of interesting combination of of Bataille and Christianity, I think is uh, increasingly attractive to, will be, uh, that's kind of predictive, it will be increasingly uh, an exciting and promising pathway for left-wingers who are trying to avoid the kind of woke version of the left today. Is the idea that you sort of scapegoat internally, or, or is there a better way of, of, of saying that? Yeah, I'm not. I, I would say you know the scapegoat is one conceptual device that that is interesting and and useful as far as it goes. Um, but I do think that what Bataille calls expenditure without reserve is it's just something different. It's it's essentially a kind of anti-utilitarian gesture um, where you can think of it as a kind of external as an internal scapegoating um, or a kind of you know a kind of scapegoating of the social system by the social system or something like that. Like when, when we have social rituals to engage in pure wasteful expenditure of resources, such as just simply uh, burning valuable resources for no reason other than a kind of joint communitarian spectacle and gesture. Um, you could think of that as, as society kind of conducting a, a sort of uh, internal scapegoating of it, of itself in some ways of its own kind of utilitarian possession, if you will. And, and this is where the, I think the, the Christian of kind of 
vocabulary comes in handy here because ultimately the underlying hypothesis here is that modern Western societies have in fact become so materialistic and so utilitarian. I mean, it so suffuses our most basic assumptions about what the world is uh, to, to, I think, a, a, an extraordinarily wide degree in sophisticated, educated, intelligent you know, Western circles. It's really, truly almost impossible for people like you and I to, to access a genuine kind of religious attitude uh, precisely because we just see utilitarianism is, is kind of so baked into what we see as good and normal that that is ultimately the thesis here is that that is ultimately what's at the bottom of all of the corruption that we're seeing in, in, in our institutions today in, in a way. And that through kind of large scale expenditure without reserve or ritualistic sacrifice of one kind or another, that that is a kind of replicable, reproducible social practice with real sociological effects that produces antidotes. In its in its very practice, it, it produces psychological and sociological antidotes to uh, the 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 corruption that is associated with a truly over materialistic, obsessively utilitarian uh, society. Is it, is it the root of the corruption, or, or the problems you're saying is is a utilitarianism that fails on its own merits, or or just like, or how does it create problems? Yeah, well, I think this is I think this is one lens to see what, what through which we can see what's going on today. I mean, modern western, you know, American society, let's say, you know, we don't really recognize anything between each other that is other that that is anything other than a, a, essentially a, a utilitarian type of framework whether and I'm not necessarily talking about money, but I'm just saying uh, at the end of the day, if we cannot communicate to each other in claims about why this is you know, good from a utilitarian perspective, it's almost like nothing else can register. It's the only register that makes any sense for human beings in modern Western civilizations to communicate with each other across groups, across, you know, let's say subcultures. It it really is the only common underlying register, I would argue. And so is it really such a surprise that we have these insane culture wars where people in various professions are peddling transparent, lies that are malicious and essentially about kind of growing their own economic power uh, at the cost of of a completely shameless kind of kind of performance and exploitation of morality you know is it really any surprise that we have these insanely divisive uh, subcultural uh, differences and political polarization where pretty much everyone will say anything they can to preach to their own choir to get a little bit more security or income or you know a feeling of of personal community satisfaction for their own little group is it really such a a mystery that our culture is so frayed and so divisive and so transparently uh based on kind of selfish and small group motivated uh petty interests um i would say that's not that's not a coincidence it's because we literally do not see any value in each other outside of a, a core kind of utilitarian calculus. And I, I think that's in large part because, you know, we, God is dead. We have killed God. We, we really do see ourselves as genuinely uh, post God. And what that means is we essentially see ourselves as God. And when you see your own interests and the calculation of your own interests as essentially God, um, well, guess what? The real serious social problems start to open up. That's my, that's my take anyway. Yeah, this segues a little bit to what you hinted earlier, at which you mentioned the contemporary left. Although you probably say the contemporary right too is um, sort of lacking a religious component, and that cre- creates a lot of problems. So, so you, you, uh, let, let's fu- fully un- unpack that. You started already a little bit, and and then talk about 
how you think we could have a solution in sort of a you know postmodern world? Oh man, well, I don't know if I'm in the business of offering large scale solutions like that. I, but that's in part because that is based on you know what what maybe some of you might find as a as a as a valuable diagnosis, which is that. I mean, I think one of the most difficult empirical truths we're facing right now is that the possibility of this kind of large-scale intellectual narrative that is going to solve the the big kind of macro problems of society, I think this is just radically off the table. I mean, I think any intellectual who is uh, kind of posturing as this diagnostician of society as a whole it has, has, has missed the boat. They've, they've missed a, a really important kind of empirical phenomenon that has already happened which is the the fragmentation and the polarization that that we're witnessing. I mean, the simple fact is that words mean different things to different subgroups now in a, in a really root way. So I think we have different groups in our society. Let's just talk about American society uh, to keep things simple. You know, there are many subgroups that are running on fundamentally different operating systems for for what reality even means. And I think you really have to take this seriously. And and I, I do take it seriously. I take it seriously enough that. I, I do kind of refuse to provide some kind of uh, bird's eye view where here's this clever idea where we're going to kind of solve the the aggregate social problems. Uh, I think if you're asking that question, you're already you're already making a major mistake. You're at the wrong level of analysis. And the question then becomes embedded where you are in the subculture where you are. What types of ideas or projects can you institute and and pursue and develop in, in a way that's materially available to you and kind of sociologically, uh, linguistically available to you and the people that you're actually connected to in your social networks, what types of projects can you pursue to uh, basically create more freedom in the world, create more power and potentiality to, you know, this is a very Spinozan idea that basically, you know, increasing the, the potential to act is pretty much the, one of the, one of the only kind of main unilateral goals. So if you just focus on basically increasing the potential of the people you're actually connected to, increasing the ability of people around you to act, that that in and of itself is, uh, one of the best things and perhaps one of one of the only things you could do if what your long-term goal is uh is to figure out ways that these different social subgroups can can potentially one day talk again to to each other i mean i i think i think it's not even clear it's it's actually quite hard to imagine how that's ever going to happen but to me the the ultimate kind of uh operating system that will potentially connect the different fragmented subgroups is just optimizing for just sheer potentiality, sheer freedom, sheer, sheer, yeah, yeah, potency would be, would be another word for it. If you simply optimize for that, then I think you have some chance of different subcultures that are optimizing for that kind of freedom. Those those subcultures can can merge or at least communicate. I think, but but short of that, I think you know any type of large scale aggregate solution is is essentially a kind of snake oil that makes someone sound really smart and it, it does abide by a kind of traditional model of what the public intellectual was. But I think the, I think anyone who who tries to present that kind of solution just doesn't doesn't understand how bad the problem already is. Yeah. And it, it seems that sense making is only getting harder and harder as we continue to fragment and 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 sort of atomize even deeper. And I'm I'm just curious if there are even collective identities that we can um, cohere around, right? Like religion used to be a big one and, and still is, you know, certain parts of the world, obviously. Um, but then 
you know, nationalism also like, and, um, and of course these, these are, you know, they're great things to them and they're problematic things to them if applied incorrectly. But like, do you see sort of like cohering identities or forms of identity that, that, that can work, whether it's those two or, or others in sort of, you know, a postmodern world, or do we need even newer ones? Or how do you think about sort of the, the sort of atomization or fragmentation versus sort of the cohering? Yeah, it's a it's a really thorny question. I mean, I do have some intuitions or hunches about this, and I was just alluding to one. I, I'll try to make a little bit more sense out of it, which is that what the what the situation looks like to me is that within institutions, you have increasingly constraining oppressive dynamics. So wherever you look, whether it be large corporations or government bodies or nonprofits or whatever the case might be, universities for sure, you're seeing a kind of acceleration of of politics, of constraint, of narrowing down potencies, of, of containing and constraining uh, potentiality. And that is a one vector. Okay, so put, set that off to the side. What you're also seeing is people who are seeing that and they're like, uh, no, thank you. I'm jumping ship at, at, at the first opportunity. And then you have all these people who are seeking exit from the increasingly suffocating uh, dynamics of the, the mainstream institutions. And so what I what I think I see happening is that the people who exit institutions, because they're going all in on this kind of just radically open-minded uh, affirmative drive of basically just saying, I don't know where this is going, but I know that I'm interested in maximizing my own freedom and I'm interested in maximizing everyone else's freedom outside of these institutional dynamics. Like if that's all you're really committed to in the short term, those people are able to talk to each other way more effectively, way more rapidly and way more, I think, constructively. And so I don't know what the next step, I don't, I don't know what the next stage or the next step is from there, but it is not, I think, too hard to see that if there is this kind of ex- exit dynamic where multiple people in multiple subcultures for multiple reasons are making their own little exits uh, and really, they're just interested in reconstituting kind of their own uh, freedom on what is essentially an open market. Then, you know, I I don't want to sound corny here, but this is where I start to get kind of uh, n- bullish on America because to me, this is essentially America. This is the, this is what the ideal of America and what made America so amazing historically. Uh, in a, in a way, my kind of longer term expectation here in some way i'm i'm quite bullish on america right now which is a, i think an unpopular opinion because i think the all the institutional problems that we're seeing uh which a lot of people are rightly lamenting and and and, and very sad about it's really just going to force people to uh reconvene on the outside and yeah i would be i'd be selling you snake oil if i tried to give you some kind of uh, really confident prediction about how that pans out but uh for my own experience and observations i do have this hunch that from that basis, new and, and better things uh, become possible. And if the institutional dynamics are actually incentivizing us and forcing us to do that, perhaps more aggressively and more rapidly than other countries, precisely because our institutions are so bad, maybe that's actually going to be a good thing. Yeah, no, it, it is definitely a contrarian opinion. I mean, we just passed July 4th a couple weeks ago, and, you know, it was the least patriotic or, uh, you know, July 4th I, I've ever been a part of uh, or, or seen. And so, like, how does America rebrand in your view? <laughs> how do we yeah. rebrand it in a way that, you know, we, you can be patriotic and, and not be corny or something or, or wrong. 
Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, I think this might be a, this might be one of those biases of people who are successful within institutions, this idea that you need to package it and sell it to other people in a way that makes sense. I mean, obviously, if you're going to be succeeding on the open market, you know, uh, providing goods or services or whatever, there's obviously a branding aspect and, and branding is real and important. But when it comes to the actual long-term dynamics of a country or of a, a, a nation, you don't really it's not really an important consideration to think of a, to, to think of a framing for the project. Like you don't actually have to sell it to anyone. You have to figure out what the dynamics are and then you need to ride those waves intelligently and creatively. But what I'm talking about is actually you don't need to rebrand America. You don't actually need to sell what I'm, what I'm talking about. I, like people have to like what, what I'm essentially arguing is that these are imminent dynamics that are happening. And if, if people who don't like what's happening within the institutions simply decide to go their own way, which frankly, to me still seems as, as possible as ever and, and more and more possible with all of the new affordances we have, uh, you know, I think it's, it's never been easier to start a business of some kind. And all you need is that kind of local heuristic all you need is for people to increasingly learn that that's more and more available and the institutions are less and less attractive that if, if, if that is true, if, if my hypothesis is correct, uh, all you need is for people to realize that and to actually pursue what is imminently uh, attractive to them in that moment. Uh, you know, you don't need to like uh, describe and write a book about this pattern and effectively get that book into the hands of millions of people in a way that resonates with them. You don't need to do that. No, you actually just everyone, um, everyone needs to follow the basic local heuristic and the word will get out to other people around in your network that, you know, it's time to jump ship and do your own thing. Yeah. You know, to a tweet I respond, I had the other day about unbundling the university, you, you mentioned that there will be sort of N masterclasses and N clubhouses, one for each psychologically significant subcultural difference. Can can you unpack that a a little bit? Yeah, well, I just think that you're going to see a lot of differentiation by personality traits. I think uh, personality traits are real. People have uh, very different skills and strengths and weaknesses. And also what people enjoy doing is, is, is very different. And we have a lot of pretty good knowledge about what those distributions look like. You know, I think the the big five model is uh, it, ha- it has some critics for sure. Uh, no, sci- no social scientific model is perfect, uh, but I think it's uh, incredibly useful for thinking about these issues uh, because when you look at that research and 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 a lot of people will be able to relate to this in their own life if they simply compare themselves to other people. Um, the fact is that uh, people enjoy different things and are good at different things. And what you see in the economy right now is that if you look at how the creator economy or the passion economy is playing out it seems to be that the people who do best are the people who go all in on their most unique idiosyncratic traits. And um, so because of that, there's a ton of room for differentiation, uh, especially when you already see in the creator economy that that personality, it's kind of an automatic differentiator. You know, if you're doing, if you're doing content, uh, you know, if you're doing the kind of full stack professor model or the indie thinker model, you know, simply doing your research and trying to communicate it in public, you don't have to try with any kind of strategic intent to, oh, I'm going to maximize this personality trait because I'm good at this. You don't even need to do anything like that. No, you just do what you can do the best you can do it in the way that you think is cool. And you're going to find that the audience that comes to you is already automatically highly differentiated. And that's simply for the obvious reason that it's going to be the people that are like you who 
for whom it really resonates. So there's already this, uh, I think, extremely rigorous kind of personality-based differentiation mechanism that is taking place in the creator economy and the, and the passion economy. So what you're seeing now with a lot of the big startups that are kind of building things in this space, you know, like Masterclass or, uh, you know, the other examples that you cited is, yeah, you can in the short term have um, big startups with a lot of venture capital build a big thing and build a, a pretty big tent, right? Like Masterclass is going to be able to get a lot of people super interested in their kind of edutainment videos, no doubt about it. But that big tent is only going to last so long, right? Because it's not that hard for me to look at Masterclass and decode, oh, okay, so there's millions of people who might like this content, but I could make it a little bit weird in the way that I like. And yeah, maybe I'm only going to have a total addressable audience of, you know, maybe 50,000 people. I'm pulling numbers out of thin air, but 50,000 people is more than enough for one person to have uh, an amazingly happy and successful business on. So I, I just see that as the the ultimate long run equilibrium of all of these startups that are based on kind of the 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 the, the content creator economy. It's you know the, all the big tents they can last for a little while, but they're going to get chipped away into a large number of small tents simply automatically by everyone creating content in the way that is most interesting to them. Yeah, you've identified yourself in a, in one podcast as a libertarian communist. <laughs> yeah, can you unpack that? Yeah, well, I mean that's just a little provocation, I guess, because I am very interested and always have been, and, and still feel strongly committed to the to the necessity for. Uh, egalitarian redistribution. I, I do believe in a very deep way that we, you know, no person is free until everyone is free. And so long as there's anyone in my country who is born into a life where they don't have the basic resources they need to live a dignified life, so long as there's even one person who's born into that situation, I will never be free. I will never be fully content. I will, I will never have um, a, a truly full and good life. Uh, things will never be just until everyone is looked after in, in a radical way. I, I do believe that. However, I understand economics and I'm a realist and I, and I don't you know, make things up just to please uh, what I see as moral imperatives. I think that's frankly the problem that most leftists make is they start with a radical moral imperative, which I think is good and true. And then they will simply backfit some kind of uh, ludicrous economic theory to reflect and support their the moral imperative. And so, you know, if I call myself a libertarian communist, it's just because I think you can affirm a kind of radical necessity for human beings to to look after each other and be obligated to each other. And then also say, oh, yeah, economics is real. So libertarianism is pretty much true when it comes to empirical models of how the world works. The question is, how what do you do then? Well, I don't know, but the job of an intellectual is not to know everything. That's where you start to make things up and you start to, you start to um, be selling snake oil and you, you start getting trapped in a ton of lies. So, you know, I have some little theories like everyone probably does about how you can, you know, square, square the circle or what have you. But uh, the, the most important thing in my mind is to uh, kind of separate moral and ethical requirements and commitments from Im empirical models and f make the uh, synthesis of those two a kind of honest, scientific, objective process that is figured out uh, collectively through trial and error. Totally. So, I mean, is, is it a sort of a fancy way of just saying capitalist? <laughs> well, no, because I think, you know, if... No, no, because I do think that there is a real problem and shortcoming for people who are a little too comfortable with capitalism, where 
it is very common, I think, for for libertarians and and self-identified capitalists to uh, be relatively kind of morally comfortable with the, the preponderance of suffering that exists at the lower rungs of of our society. I, I do think that's real. I do think that's a problem. I, for, so, in other words, I criticized the leftist mental model a minute ago. I think my critique of the the right leaning mental model would be that oh, because under you know, a kind of libertarian framework, everyone is free to, you know, do the best that they can. And everyone will in the long run be, be rewarded in a way that is proportionate to their, to their marginal product or what have you that, um, you know, it does provide a kind of, um, moral rationalization. It, it, it does become a kind of um, medicine, if you will, that, that lets people sleep at night, I think, in, despite the, the existence of, of, ex- often extreme poverty and, and, and a lot of extreme uh, social suffering, even if it's kind of twisted and, and uh, displayed in, in perverted ways. And so, yeah, I, I, I don't think it's as simple as saying, isn't that just capitalist? Because it, it, it is an urgent problem. It, it, is, it is an urgent and immediate problem that there are people who are born into the world without the resources to live a dignified life. And there are always going to be some of those people under a straight capitalist model I, you know, you could debate that perhaps, and we can have that debate. But my find that capitalists are are indeed a little too comfortable with that. Yeah, totally. But it, just in terms of practically how you amend for that, if you don't want you know the government to do it. Yeah, well, there's there's there are internal mechanisms, right? I mean, I think we could be. I think I think libertarians and capitalists could be more interested in communism in in the sense of small c you know, communitarianism would be like a, a less, you know, triggering word, right? Um, and of course, many, you know, rich people and libertarians and capitalists, of course, they, you know, in practice, you know, they, they have families and they take care of their friends and, and, and they do often share their, their wealth widely with, with everyone they can. And there's philanthropy, of course. But, you know, I think, frankly, this is where Bataille comes in because this is exactly what we were talking about before. Even our philanthropy is very rationalized. Uh, all of our you know, kind of rational libertarian, you know, kind of redistribution instincts. It's so rationalized that I would argue it, it, it nonetheless fails to provide for the people it's trying to provide a, the, the real ultimate kind of social uh, and yeah, I dare say kind of spiritual uh, need. Right. I, I, I do essentially think that. And uh, you know, I think, to to really redistribute the core values of of human existence to really ensure that everyone has a dignified life actually requires uh, more kind of extravagant and less rationalized less calculated forms of of generosity and expenditure even to the point of literally senseless useless waste that's that's the lesson of Bataille. and if if your listeners still find that just utterly bizarre like why would we waste resources who is getting helped by wasting resources if that still just seems utterly bizarre, I would just point to that as being a little bit of evidence for the fact that we are in fact so truly captured by this this kind of utilitarian model, which is in fact the the ultimate uh, problem that 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 keeps us all kind of running on uh, extremely oppressive and divisive uh, train tracks. Yeah, the thing I just want to close with: I've heard this theory that you know a lot of people are talking about sort of the you know disintegration of classical liberalism. Or, 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 and that some people say that or go further to say like the only, you know, sort of ideologies that have constituencies sort of at, at scale today are sort of this, you know, cultural Marxism, whatever you want, whatever you want to call it, um, the, the far left, 
or the far right, um, you know, sort of populist nationalism, whatever you want to call that, or sort of, you know, Catholicism, Christianity slash Islam um, or Islam. Do you, how do you sort of think about, I guess, you know, different people, different words for it, but just sort of the classical liberalism, like basically the idea that there is no center, the center is untenable, the center cannot hold. Well, I would definitely affirm that proposition in the sense that I was talking earlier about. I, I do see fragmentation and polarization as this kind of runaway train, which, you know, is a like a genie that we're not going to get back into the bottle, or at least I don't think anyone can see how you're going to get that genie back in the bottle. So in that sense, I do think that most kind of centrist, um, how should I say, centrist uh, performances or, you know, people uh, offering themselves up as centrist mediators are usually playing a, a, a kind of con that they're not even fully conscious of themselves. If, if that's what you mean by the center will not hold, I, I agree. I think the, um, the center is, is really no longer available in, in, in that sense. And, and frankly, there are still a lot of people who are trying to occupy it. This is the kind of people who still write books with like big publishers or people who write New York times op-eds, like people who are still playing that institutional game generally almost to a T they all play this game of the liberal centrist mediator, even if they're leaning left or if they're leaning right, whatever, they still kind of pretend to occupy this bird's eye view. And, and that is uh, just part of their core posture, even though I think it's, it's basically just over. Um, and in that sense, I think the center will not hold. On the other hand, I think where you find yourself when you exit institutions and you, you, when you radically exit institutions, i I have found that, a lot of the political games that seemed super important and real and live when you were playing some kind of institutional game, all of a sudden they melt away. And it's like, I think increasingly, there's just less and less need to have political opinions at all, frankly. I mean, I, I, I do think that we are entering a kind of accelerating capitalist, uh, technologically determined uh, kind of kind of wave, if you will, a wave of 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 civilizational advance. You know, I think in other words, to use a social science term, I I see it as it's it's all endogenous. Like what will happen is largely outside of our control. Uh, There are kind of nonlinear, there are various nonlinear, highly complex kind of systemic dynamics going on. Those dynamics don't really care about whether I like the Democrats or I like the Republicans. And I think there will be an increasingly you know, popular awareness among among truly educated and truly intelligent people, I think you're going to see people actually care less and less about what their political opinions are. And instead, they're going to focus on just building things. And again, this is this is why I, I, I remain weirdly bullish on America, because I think this is what America always did really well. And it's kind of in our DNA that at the end of the day, you know, political opinions do kind of melt away in, in favor of people just figuring out how to build things. And I think you know, that's, as I said before, that's actually being incentivized and accelerated by the institutional uh, corruption problems. Totally. There, there's this one critique of sort of classical or the center right now, as it relates to sort of the, the free speech issue uh, in the Harper speech that came out last week or the other week, which is basically like, you're not, you're not, no one gets really far saying things like, you know, affirming that you're right, but just saying that you're going too far, like, mm-hmm. uh, as opposed to just saying, actually you're wrong or you might be wrong. Um, and so the, the argument of you're right, but you're going too far, not being a strong enough argument to sort of satisfy extremists on either side. Do you, do you have a take on that? 
Yeah, I I don't know. I I don't want I don't want to be like an unwilling interviewee here, but like I I genuinely kind of feel like I I genuinely find it hard to muster interest in these kind of like internecine institutional disputes because that's that's essentially what I say it. It's like who's on the Harper's letter, who agrees with the Harper's letter. I honestly didn't look into it that much because to me it's just an utter snooze fest. So I don't I don't really have too much of a take. And in fact, if you don't mind, uh, you know, you've been very kind asking me all these questions. I'd love to ask you a question. I'll bounce this back to you. I mean, for someone like you, for someone like you, who's, um, you know, you're a mover, you're a shaker, you're building things, you're doing interesting, cool, original, creative things. I'm genuinely curious why someone like you even cares about, you know, these, these political opinion questions, right? I mean, like, why, I'd be curious for you to tell me, like, why don't you just completely check out of, all of these things and kind of write off all of Harper's, write off all of that stuff, write off all of those people as kind of uh, just not even worth paying attention. And why don't you just like, like if I were you, I would just be building cool startups and just hanging out with people who are not stupid and interesting and creative and having fun with like my friends. Like I would do that full time. Like that's basically what I'm trying to do. I just, I'm not as far as you. I don't have as much money as you. <laughs> but I'm, I'm curious. Like why, why do you care? It's a good question. I, and, and maybe I shouldn't. I, I am surprised at how many people in technology do, even if they're sort of, you know, can't publicize that they do. I, I think w- the first thing that came to me, maybe it's right, maybe it's not, is, I mean, basically, you know, Facebook and Twitter are really powerful social media platforms. And, the, you know, the, the policies that they adopt, you know, have really important effects. And sort of to the effect that the battle of ideas is being waged in things like the Harper's Letter or, or just Twitter generally, to the extent that that influences people who work at Twitter and Facebook, who are my friends, um, you know that that that's that's pretty important, right? But don't you have access to at least dozens and dozens of people who are super smart, interesting, creative, and see through all the idiocy, and would just be happy uh, talking with you directly and creatively and freely, right? Like, why not just surround yourself by those people with those people? And if you, like, if you have friends who are influenced by like what they read on Facebook. Can't you just maybe like not hang out with them as much? <laughs> what I mean is people who work at Facebook. So the, 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 oh. the opinions of people who work at Facebook and Twitter towards free speech are important. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess I, that's, maybe that's an interesting and, and productive disagreement. I guess I kind, of, I kind of don't see it as important. Maybe I'm crazy on that. But my attitude is kind of like if Facebook is if, – if the entire corporate structure of Facebook is – getting possessed by kind of the woke mind virus, then all that says to me is, okay, Facebook is going to be over soon and I'll just look elsewhere. Like I just write it off. Like, I'm just like, okay, it's over. It's possessed. It's, it's going to be, it's good. It's going to be a rotten corpse uh, before you know it. And so I'm just going to pull out of that and devote all my attention and efforts elsewhere. And so I, I guess I don't see it as important. Well, that would be nice if true. And it might be true. (laughs) Uh, You know, uh, and I think it'd be truer for Twitter than for Facebook in the sense of like, I think it's really hard to leave Facebook, you know, it just, or people have all their friends there, they have all their photos there. And, you know, like you hear about people leaving, but there's still 2 billion people, you know, on the site. Um, whereas Twitter is, you know, you have your following and, and so that matters. But um, I guess what I would add to this is that this is my kind of outsider critique of Silicon Valley and kind of, uh, you know, VC circles is I actually think almost all social groups have these really powerful built-in kind of conformity dynamics. Uh, no matter how smart you are, no matter how creative and badass you are, if you are in a scene where, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a cool kids group and, and, and all of that, you're almost by definition going to get wrapped up in, into these kind of status games and these, and these prestige games. And 
frankly, I think that's kind of why really smart, creative, badass people nonetheless still care so much about these like dying institutions that in many ways, you know, for, I don't know, I I've written off. And so like I take take a good example of, um, this recent like clubhouse controversy I'm sure you're familiar with. I'm not in clubhouse. I'm not that cool. As I was telling you before, I I don't actually know uh, many, uh, you know, powerful people. I'm not in the cool kids club, but what I thought was really interesting about this was that like, if I hear about a bunch of super smart, creative, badass entrepreneurs and VC people hanging out in like a private space, I'm just, it boggles my mind that they are talking about like institutional losers. Like why not? Why aren't they just like, hanging out in VR, like doing their own ideas, building their own things full time, like just check out, check out of all the losers and institutions. Those people are just slow. They're behind. And yeah, they're going to play like ridiculous political games. But I I don't know, I guess maybe it's because I'm younger or something like that. I don't know. Like I just basically see, I see all of those people as on a sinking ship and I, I feel bad for them. And what I'm interested in is I want to build private communities and, and uh, you know, uh, collectives and experiments where smart, cool, creative people just go to do smart, cool, creative things and they literally forget about everyone on Facebook and they literally forget about the losers in the Harper's letter or whatever the case might be, you know? Like, like I, I just want to seriously exit from all of it uh, as a whole and just hang out with cool people and make cool stuff full time. And, and I think this is available. Like, this is my contention. It, it, is, it does actually happen more and more. You know, like if, if you look at like my media diet, like, I hang out with cool people all day, like you on your podcast and other people on their podcasts. And uh, I don't know. I think there's this bias where we still have this traditional idea that an educated, intelligent person is supposed to read the news and they're supposed to, ha- they're supposed to be participating in the, at the top of the pyramid, the, the people at the top of the pyramid. But the way that I see it is there's this big traditional pyramid. And yes, there are still some people at the top of it. But that whole, py- that whole pyramid is, is, is in flames. It's a big, that the, the big traditional pyramid of society's hierarchy. It's this big, massive dumpster fire. And there are smart, creative people who see it's a dumpster fire. And these smart and creative people are able to build things on their own, on the open market without any institutional dependencies. And yet those of us who are doing that, we still are looking at the, the, the flaming dumpster fire and like acting as if it matters. Yeah. And, uh, this is, I, I think this is like one of my, one of my missions is to basically like try to, I don't know, find ways that smart creative people can just basically let the, let the, let the dumpster fire burn because all those people, like they want to be on there. If they want to get off the dumpster fire, they can come hang out with us and do our like cool, creative, constructive things. But if they don't, then they're choosing to hang out in the dumpster fire and I'm not going to pay any attention to that. Yeah, no, I, 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 I agree with a lot of that. I think if I was being most charitable to the, I'll just call it the biology side of this conversation, it, it, why pay attention at all or why even get involved? I, I think he would say or they would say that we would love to just mind our own business, but hey, people are getting fired, you know, left. And it's happening less now. But you know, CEOs were basically, some of them were being covered negatively in a way that would lead to their firing. And they're sort of like, hey, how, how does this, you know, sort of media corporation has that I'm competitive, vaguely competitive with have power to fire me like if, if imagine if the coke you know uh, ceo had power to fire the pepsi ceo just based on like a press release that the, the coke ceo released but i i think where where i agree with you is just build a better one <laughs> you know it, it's an alternative instead of just sort of compl- complaining uh, or or uh, like or uh yeah b- just build a a better version of it that eclipses the, the old one um so 
Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, especially, I think, especially if you're, if you're already rich and powerful, I mean, like how bad is your fall going to be, frankly, you know, I mean, I, I almost got fired from academia. I didn't, I didn't give you the whole long story, but it basically kind of looked like I was going to get fired because I was being very provocative and kind of, you know, poking the bear a little too much and uh, looked like I was maybe going to get fired. I decided to basically just take my ball and go home because I'm proud like that. But basically, I mean, I was basically pushed out in a kind of sudden and precarious situation where my income and my status rapidly decreased uh very suddenly and uh i don't i come from a working class family like i don't have anything to fall back on so you know i i guess i don't have a ton of uh sympathy for like high powerful you know highly powerful wealthy ceos who maybe get like taken down from some kind of high profile you know social justice mob or whatever because it's like if i can take my licks and see it as an exciting affirmative opportunity to be more free and to build something more badass than the dead institutions I got pushed out of. Like if I can have that attitude and enjoy it and succeed in building something meaningful and have a coherent, uh, passionate, affirmative life story out of it, then surely um, like a wealthy CEO who, you know, often when they do have these cancellation events, um, you know, it's, it's not like all of their money is being taken from them right. or something like that. Uh, often, it, often actually the terms are often quite generous, frankly. And so it's like, yeah, go build something else. Go, if, if, there's a, if there's a corporate governance problem, which is really frightening and, and seriously problematic, well, great. This is your calling to do something epic. Like do some alternative with crypto that is going to make that problem like impossible to reproduce. Um, be the person who leads that. That's a cool calling. It's a blessing to have that. And so I think that should be embraced. And all the people that are doing that kind of stuff should just hang out with each other and, and only talk to each other. <laughs> yeah, totally. No, uh, I think that's a great place to, to wrap. Uh, my guest today has been Justin Murphy. Uh, Justin, it's been a fantastic episode. Uh, Justin, where, where can you point people to, uh, who want to go deeper and check out your work? Oh, yeah, sure. I do all my personal kind of creative intellectual work on a little brand I built called Other Life. You can find that at theotherlifenow.com. I do podcasts and videos and, and I write blogs and books and all that. And I'm doing some online courses. And uh, my little startup that I'm building to, yeah, creatively and kind of iteratively figure out how to frame the other academic professorial functions that I've traditionally provided in academia. It's called IndieThinkers.org. And uh, that's my that's my little effort to, yeah, try to package some of the value that I'm able to create as a professor in uh, different ways that, that, that hopefully resonates as useful and valuable to people on the internet. So you can check out IndieThinkers.org. It's built for people who are trying to do their own independent intellectual life. And uh, yeah, so it's a combination of kind of instructional materials and also a social network of other people uh, that are doing this well and uh, other features like accountability and motivation features, uh, which my underlying thesis there is that, you know, the university has always been this big bundle of all of these different little psychological benefits that, are, that empower people to do intellectual work. So as, I, as we alluded to before, I'm basically trying to unbundle those and repackage them and, and frame them as, as a viable kind of value proposition on the open market on the internet. So that's, I'm doing that with indiethinkers.org. And uh, yeah, I just want to say thanks for having me on, Eric. Yeah, uh, perfect. Uh, thank you for, for coming on. It, it, it's been great. Thank you, Eric. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.